Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. All right. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat, obviously. Um, hi. Hey. Good morning. All right, we're going to have to work today. I see it. I see it. It's all right. Uh, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you to Journey. If you are new with us, hello. Um, and evidently, um, we are not the Arctic Midwest. We are Nashville. And today, it is supposed to be 50 degrees. And so we'll celebrate by wearing shorts and short sleeves. So well done, young lady. Uh, this is very exciting. We are, as Susie said, uh, in the second week of a series of conversations we're calling the Upside Down Kingdom. And it's regarding the text of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you remember last week, we started in chapter 4, because the thesis statement of the book of Matthew is in chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus begins his preaching ministry with the simple announcement. Dave, go ahead. That from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God has come near. And as we talked about last week, the announcement of a kingdom involves a king forming a people that live together under the king's reign and rule. And that this was consistent with what God intended with Adam and Eve and Israel and now Jesus as he forms his church. And the kingdom of God is not just a message, but it's also a reality. It's the fact that God is cut returning to the earth as king to put things back to the way God originally intended them to be. And that this is much bigger than just accepting Jesus into our hearts or pri- you know, praying some private prayer. This is literally God working in the world through a corporate people to um, foretaste and, and demonstrate the salvation that he is bringing when he comes in all of his fullness. And so um, Matthew then for us begins to record what it is that Jesus is going to do as he proclaims this kingdom in, uh, in 23. There you go. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's what Jesus, Matthew's going to record for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then healing every disease and sickness. That's what Matthew's going to record for us in Matthew 7 and 8. If you go through, there's a lot of red letters in 5, 6, and 7. There's not a ton in 8 and 9 because Jesus is just healing person after person after person after person. So this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes. It looks like Jesus proclaiming this reality of the kingdom and embodying the reality through his healing ministry. Makes sense so far? This should be all review and hallelujah. Now, uh, let's pick up the story in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we will start in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, let's just stop there. Let's remind ourselves of who the crowds are, because obviously in the original uh, writings, there weren't verse numbers and paragraph breaks and chapter headings. And so the crowds were just a very direct reference to what we read in chapter 4. So we flip back one page to say, okay, who were the crowds? Notice verse 24 of Matthew 4. News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, 
those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. What an oddly specific list. And he what? Healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region of Jordan followed him. So, so when we get to Matthew 5, and it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, who are we talking about? Yeah, a lot of sick people, right? We realize there are some fishermen involved because he's called them as well. So we've got day laborers, we've got people with seizures, people who are demon-possessed, people in severe pain, people who are paralyzed. Does this sound like a religious all-star crowd to you? Is this the best and brightest of Judaism at this point? No, not even remotely. So these are the kinds of people flocking to hear him. And in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now Matthew, Matthew is enamored with the idea that Jesus is the new Moses. The whole gospel is built around five blocks of teaching, like the five books of Moses, the Torah, that Moses has an Egypt experience, Jesus has an Egypt experience, Mo- Moses uh, had to flee and be put into the water as a child, Jesus has to flee as a child. Um, I mean, it's, there are tons and tons of parallels. So when Jesus sits down on a mountain, the idea is you're back at Sinai and you're hearing from Yahweh again. Right, so he began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for the same, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, um, we have to talk first of all about what these aren't before we can talk about what these are. Many of us, if you've been raised in a church environment, are familiar with these. They're called the Beatitudes out of a Latin translation of the word blessed. Uh, But typically, we read these in very individualistic, sort of moralistic ways, and that's actually not what Jesus is doing here. So there are three distortions of this that we have to deal with before we get to what it is, all right? The first distortion is simply this. This is, not a, this is not Jesus answering the question, hey, how do I be blessed? This is not a list of if-then statements, even though it comes across, uh, we read it in English that way. This is not Jesus announcing, hey, if you want to be blessed, be a peacemaker, then you'll be blessed. If you want to be blessed, be merciful, then you'll be blessed. Although I know it sounds like that, that's actually not what he's doing. First of all, Blessed uh, is this really interesting word. There are two different words that we translate blessed. Go ahead and put those up, Dave. The first one, um, that, so the Greek is first and then the Hebrew equivalent. The first word that we translate blessed means to ask that some blessing be given. God, would you bless them? Would you heal the sick? Um, the idea is they don't have something and you're asking God to bring it. Okay, that's the first word for blessed. The second word for blessed, um, again in its Greek and then Hebrew forms, 
isn't asking God to do something, but it's recognizing a state of affairs that already exists in somebody. And this is the word that Jesus uses. So these are statements that are like, hey, if you want to be blessed, do this. No hugging and kissing in the first row, my friend. It's totally distracting. I mean, I'm all for a holy kiss, but that was, that was just a little, a little over the line, John. You're, really? Yeah, no, your face wasn't towards me that whole time. I can guarantee you, okay? The back row was trying not to look at what was happening, so I don't trust their judgment. No. It's John, he's our friend. We like him. Um, and, and, and whether or not there was kissing, it's just fine. It's just when it happens right in front of me as I'm talking about the Bible, there might be a comment. I mean, I can't promise that there just will be silence in that. All right. So the second word for blessed recognizes something that's already true. So, for instance, I know Bill and Melinda Gates have divorced, but let me just use them as an example, as if they were still a couple. It would be like saying, blessed is the child of Bill and Melinda Gates, for theirs will be a great inheritance. Right? It's recognizing they don't have to do anything to be the child of Bill and Melinda Gates. They already are. And in virtue of being that, in that relationship, they are not only currently blessed, but will be blessed in the future. Does that make sense? So this isn't Jesus saying, listen, guys, let me tell you how to be blessed. Be merciful and you'll be blessed. Be persecuted, you'll be blessed. Be poor in spirit, and then you'll be blessed. It's not a list that we're climbing, even though I've read some of my favorite commentators have said that. I just don't think that's true. That's not what blessed means here. Not only that, but Jesus is speaking to groups of people and not individuals. We always have to remember that Jesus is speaking to a community and not just to individual Christians 2,000 years later. This is not about my personal life with Jesus. This is about what it is that constitutes the kingdom of God. All right, and the kingdom of God is constituted by people like this. So the first distortion we have to deal with is this is not a list of how to be blessed. This is recognizing blessing where it already exists. Makes sense? All right, distortion number two. These are not separate individual moral commitments. I mean, certainly it is good to be merciful. And certainly peacemaking is you know, commended to us lots of other places. But what's happening is Jesus is describing the same kind of person nine different ways. And the reason we know that, put up the chart, my friend. Now, oh, tough to read. But notice, these are the first, the first eight of the nine. The ninth one is different because Jesus uh, refers to himself here. This one is about if you're persecuted because of me. But notice... Notice a couple of things in the right column, far right column. Notice the first one and the last one. Theirs is the kingdom of God, and that's repeated in the first and last. Do you see that? Do you also see that it's present tense, where all of the rest of them are future tense? Do you see that? Now, this is something in biblical literature called an inclusio, or uh, you'll hear it referred to colloquially like this is a sandwiching technique. And it's where you bracket the same phrase um, and surround a bunch of material in the middle, and those brackets explain what the material is in the middle. So Jesus does this famously with when, he, when he curses the fig tree. He curses the fig tree, 
he goes and, and critiques the temple and then comes back to the fig tree. And the idea is the fig tree explains what Jesus is doing at the temple. In the same way, the first and eighth beatitude, when he talks about theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that this is, this is uh, imagine if you will, nine, uh, a stained glass window made up of nine separate pieces of glass. They're each beautiful on their own. But when they're put together, then you see a much bigger portrait that's better than just looking at them individually. Make sense? So this, Jesus isn't just saying, all right, here's a list of individual things. He's painting a picture of the kind of person who is inheriting and is blessed to inherit the kingdom. All right, you with me so far? Ish? Yeah, okay, all right. Maybe, you know. It took, it took me a while to understand this, so you must be smarter. Um, so first distortion, this is not a list of how to be blessed. Americans always are asking, how do we be blessed? The most blessed people on the earth want always to know how to be more blessed. That is a problem. Um, secondly, these are not individual moral commitments that we just all agree to and work our way up. All right. The third distortion, these aren't just random call-outs. It's not that Jesus is looking out here and he's like, hey, you look poor in spirit, blessed are you. Hey, you look merciful, blessed are you. Oh, dude, you're definitely persecuted, blessed are you. Right, he's not just looking and just saying, oh, what, you know, I mean, I'd be like, oh, yes, I look out and I see the masked people, blessed are them, and the unmasked people, blessed are them, and the Kansas City Chief fan in the back, blessed is she, Right? You're not, he's not just doing this randomly. All right? What he's doing instead, all of these are Old Testament categories of people who are all yearning for God to become king again. And he is announcing that they are blessed, not only because he, the king, is in their presence, but because his kingdom is offered to them first. He's not preaching this in Jerusalem. He's preaching this to a bunch of people who have seizures, who are demon-possessed, who are paralyzed, right? So the reason they're blessed isn't, I mean, Jesus isn't up there saying, hey guys, I want you to be poor in spirit. Now, obviously that's not a bad thing to be. And he's saying, listen, be merciful, guys, come on. Obviously that's not a bad thing to be. What he's doing instead is he's saying, in the kingdom, in light of him and his kingship, all of the yearning, of the Old Testament is now brought to its focal point. So these are all callbacks to Old Testament passages. And this is where, as just American Christians, we're, we're, and me too, we're all just so biblically illiterate to the Old Testament that we don't recognize the, when, these when they kind of smack us up on the face. So when you get the first two, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn, that comes from Isaiah 61. So Isaiah 61, conveniently enough, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the what? To the poor. He has sent me to bind the bro- up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who what? Now, this whole text is about Yahweh's return to Jerusalem as king. And guess which text Jesus uses for his first sermon in the book of Luke? This one. 
So when Jesus is speaking about blessed if you're poor in spirit and you're mourn, he's talking about, he's not talking about, hey, God's going to make you feel better or God's going to lift you up. He's talking about the, the mourning that you have for the state of Israel is about to be remedied in my presence. The yearning for the poor in spirit have for the restoration of Israel. If you read the context of Isaiah 61, it's all about rebuilding the city and God coming to Zion in power. That was the yearn. He's not talking about, hey guys, I mean seriously, if you're sad today, now God does comfort us, hallelujah, but that's not who the mourners are here. Are you with me? I'm sorry I'm asking so much, but are you with me so far? I, I don't mean to bug you, but I just want to make sure we're, you know, it took me a while to figure all this out. Then you get to the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, when it says blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, the, the word for earth and the word for land are the same word. Nobody in, in ancient Judaism cared about inheriting the earth. All they cared about was inheriting the land. And what was the land for them? What? Wealth? Yes, but wealth manifested in the physical location of Israel. Correct? The promised land. The Old Testament's all about land. And so when you hear, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land, or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those both come from psalms that yearn for the repossession of the land. Right? So Psalm 37 is, is where we get the idea of meek. Uh, In a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the what? Yeah. Now, meek here is really interesting because the word means someone who does not take advantage of their position. So we have a lot of misunderstanding about what, what meek is. Some define it like strength under control, and, and that's partially true. But it's got a more specific. It's contrasted here with the wicked. And in the psalm, the wicked are the ones who take advantage of their position to oppress the poor and marginalized. The meek do not take advantage of their position. They're not pushy. They don't step on others to get what they want. And it's those people who have yearned for the land to be returned to God's people. Those are the kinds of people who inherit it. And truly, when Jesus speaks this word, it's actually quite true because there are people, it is now beginning in Israel to think that what we need to do with the Romans is to advocate violence against them. To, to step into that idea of wickedness and to stop being meek. And so 30 years from now, the nation of Jerusalem will be, you know, in shambles. The nation of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem will be in shambles and Israel will be scattered to the winds because they didn't remain meek. So all of this, I'm just showing all of this is historical tie-ins. These are not just individual spiritual attributes that we're all supposed to have, although certainly some of them are worth having. All right, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, from Psalm 107, they were hungry and thirsty, their lives ebbed away. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So um, again, not just random call-outs, you would have, you know, as, as somebody who was Jewish back in the day, and here's a rabbi 
who's assuming kind of the seat of Moses on this mountainside, who's proclaiming a blessedness that already exists over you, but the categories he's using aren't random. These are all Old Testament categories of people who were yearning, who were not content with the status quo, who were yearning over the state of things and wanted God to come and put things right. They had room in their hearts for God still. They hadn't succumbed to wealth or politics or violence to see Israel be restored. They had resorted, they'd been stomped on, they had resorted to only trust and hope in God. And to them, he says, you are blessed now and in what's coming. I love this stuff. A couple more just to overmake the point. Right? Mercy, blessed are the merciful, comes from Proverbs. And the LXX, that's a reference to something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. This, the LXX, I know none of you, maybe three of us care. Susie cares. Um, Kevin cares. Yeah? All right, four of us. Um, no, LXX, this is the Bible that the early church uses. And so it often will translate differently. And so anyway, in two, I, you didn't need all of that. I could have just said, well, look at Psalm 41 in the Septuagint. The one who has mercy on the poor is blessed. And look at uh, Proverbs 17. The one who has compassion shall receive mercy. Right? You would have just recognized these. Or let's go pure in heart, ladies and gentlemen. One more. It's from Psalm 24. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? What's the mountain of the Lord? What's that? Yes, Jerusalem. Points for that smart person. Yes, Jerusalem. Who may stand in his holy place? What's the holy place in Jerusalem? The temple. The one, who is the one that can go stand before God at the temple? The one who has clean hands and a what? Yeah. So who are the pure in heart? They're the ones that want to see God in the temple. And guess what? They will see God. Now, any questions so far? And I'm serious. There was a, a, a woman who I adore at the 11 o'clock service last week who could not help herself in the middle of a sermon raised her hand and asked a question and it was the most glorious thing ever. So, are you with me so far? Any, any thoughts, questions on this? Awesome, you guys are amazing. So, okay, great. This is wonderful information, Mike. I'm blown away and dazzled. <laughs> dazzled. How and, and of what relevance does this have to my life? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the fascinating world of shadow art. Now, Brett, evidently you did this back in the day, so no shock here with Journey Arts Collective. But this was new to me, and I discovered it through a guy named Tim Mackey, who is a part of the Bible Project, and he'd used this illustration. And I was like, dude, this is perfect. So go ahead and fire up. So shadow art is you walk into a room, and it's a bunch of trash in a pile, and then they turn off one light and turn on another light, and all of a sudden, it's not just trash. Next. It makes this incredible picture, right? It's all about like a surprise and a reveal. Next slide. Right, this is one of the most famous ones, the cityscape. 
right? You walk in and it's a table full of just nonsense. And then the perspective changes and all of a sudden, oh, that's pretty amazing. A couple more, just to overmake the point, right? Those are, I mean, un, I can't imagine, Brett, how much time people spend on these things, right? I know, it's absolutely, absolutely stunning. One more. Yeah, they, that, I just think that's incredible. But what's the, what's the punch of it? What makes it so compelling? Well, it's a couple things. One, it's the idea that what looks common, ordinary, and actually discarded can be a vehicle of meaning and beauty and blessing. Wouldn't you agree? And what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is, is something very similar to that. On the one hand, he's saying to these seizure-laden, paralyzed, demon-possessed, sick with various diseased kind of people. He's saying, listen, the promises, the great eschatological promises of the Old Testament that were given to Israel are now coming true. And it's being announced to you first because you are the ones who still have room in your heart for God to work in surprising ways. And so the shock isn't that, oh, he's giving us a bunch of new laws to obey. The shock is he's proclaiming blessing on the people that the religious leadership would have pronounced unblessed. You know, the Pharisees would disregard these kinds of people. The Sadducees, to, the, to, to them, these people were unimportant. The Essenes had left and vacated these kinds of people. And Jesus flocked to them and he announces upon them the blessing of the kingdom being announced to them and embodied through Jesus in the healing that has been taking place. It's also, it's also serves as an indictment because each of those texts, you know, the poor in heart, or the pure in heart, poor in spirit, each of those texts, if you read the greater context, is also a judgment or an indictment of the religious leadership. And so Jesus is speaking a word of comfort and a word of challenge. But the thing that's surprising is this little phrase, when he, when he says twice, at the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes, he said, for theirs is the kingdom. That, that phrase, for theirs is, that phrase is better translated, my kingdom consists of such as these. And, and brothers and sisters, you know, 2,000 years later, we need to be reminded at least I do, of kind of the shadow art approach of the kingdom. That, that you walk by the homeless, you walk by the disabled, you walk by the sick, the paralyzed, you walk by those people that are severely mentally ill, you, you walk by people who just don't have it together according to American values, and we're just tempted to see trash. But when the king shows up bringing the kingdom, we recognize not only are all of those people worthy of a, a special honor and dignity, but they themselves be, they're, they're vessels of blessing and beauty and meaning. And that we'd be shocked. Part of the reason why we're, we, we, just, we don't see God move as much is because we're just so enamored with our own strength and glory. Because where God's moving always is among the people you'd least expect. And so we talked last week, we introduced the idea of repentance as walking down another street. And the repentance 
derives from the idea that the light of the kingdom has come upon us as a society. And what we all thought was trash, when the light of the kingdom comes, now turns out to be something incredibly powerful and beautiful. And so there is a a continual repentance you and I must undergo where we're just determined to see success as the best, brightest, biggest. And we forget that the first inheritors of this kingdom blessing were the people who would never be in any of those categories. And so for us this morning, we're just gonna continue to walk in the, the humble repentance of people who are now recognizing the light of the kingdom has come. And we want particularly to pray for those people that, that you and I simply overlook. We don't even have to have negative feelings to them, but they're just the invisible people in our churches. They're the invisible people in our society. So what we want to do today is we just want to, when we take communion, and all are welcome to the table always. When we take communion today, there's this great uh, prayer, ancient prayer, make me an instrument of your peace. Um, this is peace with God. This is what symbolizes peace with God. But we also want to be people who bear peace, particularly to the invisible. And so as we take uh, the Lord's Supper today, would, would you just think of categories of people that we don't see and, and ask God to help us be instruments of blessing to those kinds of folks? The other thing that we do always is we have... Um, we have sheets of paper around the room at these stations, and, and they're just for people to write down prayer requests. On Tuesdays, we read these, we write them and send them out, and we pray over them. And we have learned so much about our community and so much about ourselves by reading the tender prayers or the celebrations or the things that you've wanted to walk away from so that you can embrace something else. It's such a powerful powerful exercise that we just invite you to continually do that. So I'm going to turn it back over to our team. I'm going to pray for us, and then the rest of the time is ours as a community to worship, to give, to, to pray, um, to take the, the, the Lord's Supper, um, but to respond to what it is that we've been challenged with today. So Father, we bless you. We're grateful to you that the kingdom consists of those like us. Lord, I would imagine there are quite a few of us who are poor in spirit, who aren't religious all-stars, who are people who just, we don't have it together, we don't have our doubts all taken care of, our addictions cured. Uh, We're quite the mess, and we're not sure that we're welcome in the Jesus community, and yet we see this blessing being extended to those like that. For some of us, we're filled with mourning. We hate the way our world is going. We're exhausted with pandemic life. We're exhausted with political life. We're exhausted with the animosity of our families and our friends. And we hate, we yearn for God to return and put things back to the way he originally intended. And to those people, Jesus says, my kingdom consists of you. And yes, I am at work doing just exactly that for some of us, we do hunger and thirst to see God validated and valued and worshiped for who he truly is. And in Jesus, we begin to see that coming to fruition in and through us. For some of us, 
we want to worship. We want to see God. We want to experience all that God is, and yet we haven't. There's a religious experience that's been promised us just over the horizon, and yet we've never had that. We wonder, am I truly part of this community? And to those people, God says, absolutely. The kingdom consists of people who are just like us, people in pain, people disappointed, people anxious, people doubting, people questioning, people who are apathetic and bored. And so we just simply say, welcome. You're welcome here. The kingdom of God consists of those like us. Amen and amen.